to prevent another Great Depression, the United States has to act now. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Editor-in-Chief of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. The coronavirus pandemic is showing signs of abating, but we're far from being out of the woods. We still face a crushing economic downturn, resulting from the need to shut down non-essential businesses and quarantine tens of millions of people to halt the spread of the deadly virus. How bad the situation ultimately proves to be is wildly uncertain at this point. We could be facing a V-shaped recovery, or U-shaped, or some other letter of the alphabet entirely. What we don't want is another Great Depression, such as the one that brought the nation to its knees during most of the 1930s. On this episode, I speak with Brian Del Monte, an economist, business strategist, and president of the Aviation Agency, a marketing firm targeting that industry. Our topic, the three main things that the U.S. must do to prevent another great or greater depression. So here is my conversation with Brian Del Monte. Brian Del Monte of the Aviation Agency, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, Brian, we're talking here about the three main things that need to be done to prevent another great or greater depression. What is number one? I think the primary focus right now needs to be on income and credit. The federal government has done pretty extraordinary things in the past seven eight weeks now, right? We have the economic impact payment, which is a large bolus of money, potentially for some families. We can talk about whether it's large enough, but it's still 3,400 bucks for your average family of four with two kids. We have billions of dollars in the payroll protection program, which granted, has not rolled out as smoothly as we might have hoped. You also have the economic disaster loan, which is also billions and billions of dollars, right? And then you have bailouts of various businesses and the like. So why are we doing all that? Well, we're doing all that because we intentionally, deliberately, in the name of public health, destroyed income and credit. And so the fact that we did that means that has to be our primary focus, because in the end, a lot of people think the economy is complex. It really boils down to three things. What's the real long-term productivity of a country? What's going on in its short-term credit markets? And what's going on in its long-term credit markets? And in the end, credit, more so than income, drives economic activity. We buy way more on credit than we do through income. And right now we have a pretty serious short and long-term credit problem, especially for all types of people. I believe the current unemployment rate is probably much closer to 35% than 25%. Believe that because I look at consumption patterns and I look at what I think is going on in payrolls. 
And so if you really want to keep the economy from spiraling further into nowhereville, you have to address access to credit and the problem of increasingly shrinking incomes. Well, you seem to be talking about individual credit, are you not? Because I'm wondering that before this crisis struck, there were some dire warnings about debt being a problem that was going to trigger the next recession, even without a pandemic. That was debt at the corporate level, at the sovereign level, and at the individual level. When you talk about credit, are you talking mostly about consumer credit and individual credit, or are you, are you concerned about the, the debt levels that we were seeing before this happened? Well, I'm looking at credit in the most abstract way. I'm looking at credit at the aggregate level, so the macro level, not the micro level. Mm-hmm. Although micro credit really does matter, too, in this crisis. I shared your concern about uncontrolled deleveraging in the corporate bond market, okay? Because <laughs> um, I even wrote and thought about that, okay? And I was advising clients in January. And part of the reason why our agency was kind of prepositioned to absorb COVID is we didn't know what the black swan was, but we were betting on uncontrolled deleverage occurring in the marketplace, which is what's happening right now. The sovereign debt issue I'll get to that in a second. Definitely that was an issue. Personal debts were definitely at an all-time high. Am I worried about that right now? Well, no. And the reason why is it's pretty obvious to everyone, I would hope by now, that the Federal Reserve is engaged in pretty much unconstrained quantitative easing. Mm -hmm. The net result of that activity is to boost asset values, which will naturally increase the creditworthiness of our borrowers. So the worry about uncontrolled deleveraging as a result of basically running out of gas in terms of creditworthiness is not the greatest risk in the economy. I mean, it is there. The Mm -hmm. biggest problem we have right now is essentially a lack of income. So what makes me think that? Well, reports that I'm seeing that a third of all mortgage and renters didn't pay their bills in March is disturbing. Stuff that I'm hearing and reading about estimates that it could be as high as 50% in April are beyond shocking if they turn out to be true. Credit card default rates, smaller short-term debts in terms of like car leases, car loans, things like that are running, I think, somewhere around 12, 15%. Clearly, there's a huge income problem. And so when I talk about credit, I'm not talking about it in terms of like, I got a Visa card, and I'm going to go charge up my Visa card, although that is credit. At the macro level, when we talk about credit, we're talking about bringing future production value into the now. And one of the ways you can do that is through federal borrowing, okay? Because ultimately, we have to be productive enough that the GDP grows enough to be able to pay back and service that debt, even with monetization. You still have to have enough real productivity growth in order to service Mm -hmm. that debt, or you become Venezuela. So the debt in and of itself doesn't bother me so much, because right now I think we've vaporized so much income that what we're doing with all these quote-unquote stimulus programs, and I don't like to call them that because I don't think they're stimulative. I think they're just backfilling loss still to Mm -hmm. this point is we're pulling forward future productivity because we had to shut down the economy for public health reasons. I mean, Warren Buffett, I think, had a pretty good analogy in his stockholder speech this weekend 
where he said, you know, in other crises, the train has jumped the tracks. Well, in this crisis, we just took the train off the track. And I would go one step further. We took the train off the track and threw it out the window. Okay. Yeah. Because that was the best way to stop the public health problem in our minds. Mm -hmm. Now, whether or not that was true, whether or not that was the right course of action, it's too late. The damage is done. So the question then becomes still for federal policymakers, in my view, what are you going to do to restore consumer confidence? What are you going to do to stabilize the income drops? What are you going to do to make credit available broadly across the economy? Because the markets are more or less broken. And so that's why I look at these things and go, okay, the number one policy problem, if you will, in terms of fiscal policy is you have to address what's going on in incomes across the board. And honestly, to me, that means, okay, there's going to have to be more grants, more stimulus, more spending. Now, the conservative in me looks at that and freaks out when I look at the debt. Okay. And I'm sure at some point we'll talk austerity and all that, that happy talk. But for now, the income equation for GDP is Y equals CIG. And C is first for a reason. <laughs> Consumption is usually the number one largest variable. Yeah. Okay? okay. But Y yeah, yeah. doesn't care where it comes from. Okay? So we can, we can put it in G and give it to consumers to spend, too. All right. Let me move you on, though, because this alone could, is a topic for an hours-long conversation. But I want to get to the other mm -hmm. two things that should be done. What is number two that we need to do to prevent another greater depression? Well, if we can stabilize incomes, the second thing then we have to do is restore consumer confidence through solving the public health problem. And ostensibly, you could argue that that's number one, and then restoring incomes is number two. But honestly, until you put money in people's pockets, I don't think they're going to listen about public health issues. Okay, that's just my instinct. So I would focus on, you got to solve the public health problem. Well, what's that mean? Well, that means you're going to have to develop all these institutions to do all this, and processes to do all this wonderful stuff that everybody thinks needs to be done, like white testing, like contract tracing. Like figuring out how are we going to fly on aircraft? Nobody wants mm -hmm. to sit in that middle seat before COVID. You think anybody wants to sit there now? Well, airlines can't survive with two-thirds load factors. They just can't, okay? So we have to restore confidence in a way that everyone feels that the situation is stable. I don't think the situation will be good for quite some time. But I do think we can make people have trust that the situation is stable and not uncontrolled. Even before we have a vaccine? Yes, I think so. Yeah, because, I mean, I'll be frank, my own opinion on the record is I don't think a vaccine is possible. I don't believe what I hear on vaccine stuff. It's not that I'm anti-vaccine. I'm not. It's not that I don't think we're going to spend a Herculean effort. I'm sure we will. But vaccines historically have proven to be exceptionally difficult. And even when we have thrown hundreds of billions of dollars, we have not always been successful. And I certainly don't believe a vaccine will be possible by September, which I constantly keep hearing. Now, I hope I'm wrong because nothing would restore confidence more so than a safe and effective vaccine. But no. presuming that doesn't happen, 
we have to figure out how to get beyond the emergency through the end of the beginning and into the long road, which will probably take two years of fighting and dealing with this and figuring out a way to live life, given the realities of a contagion that is difficult at times to control. And that means we have to have faith in institutions. We have to have faith in our procedures and our culture and our practices. And we have to restore some sense of normalcy. Okay. I mean, to me, I'll believe that we're making progress down the road when I can buy chicken, toilet paper, and paper towels at the grocery store again. And if I could buy Lysol, that'd even be better. Okay. But I get it in terms of, but right now we can't even solve simple supply problems and we got people freaking out. So let's move on to number three. What is the third main thing that you want to discuss? The last element that I think no one talks about and would be important, and I don't have a lot of hope or confidence about this. A pandemic requires a coordinated institutional response, both inside a country and ostensibly internationally. The United States is potentially the only country that could corral, incentivize, and manage an international effort to deal with COVID and to restore faith in institutions and systems beyond just the United States. Again, let's take aviation. International travel is going to have to resume at some point. We got to work with all the places those planes are going to land. Okay, so just like after 9-11, we had to lead an international coalition, not just in terms of the global war on terrorism, we had to lead an international coalition of countries to make airline travel safer, to make trade safer, to make immigration safer. Similarly, there are all these tangential problems regarding public health that we need to now coordinate with pretty much everyone, although at least to start with our allies would strike me as the ones we need to focus on. Now, I'm not particularly hopeful about this because of the nature of our foreign policy and because of our relatively inward-looking approach on this. I share the skepticism of the president regarding the WHO, but cutting their throat doesn't build international coalition. I believe the United States needs to focus on its public health problems, but I also believe we need to then lead the world in the manufacturing of PPE, of ventilators, of all these systems and controls that are going to be necessary to control the virus. Because in the end, the U.S. economy benefits when the world is orderly and stable. We disproportionately benefit from that condition. So we have to take the lead. We probably have to bear the highest cost, but we also benefit the most. And we need to work with the rest of the international community to solve some of these problems so that we don't get ad hoc measures and we don't create basically pockets of uncertainty around the world because capitalism is a coward. We want certainty, stability, and normalcy. The United States is the only country that could do that in a way that would benefit most countries. Now, others may certainly try to do this. It wouldn't surprise me if the Chinese decide to lead internationally. I don't think that would benefit the United States nor most of the developed world. But 
That's what's required right now. I'm not hopeful about it because the president doesn't seem to be oriented that way. And quite frankly, neither do the American people. But that's also what happened during the Spanish flu as well. After World War One, we were basically, hey, rest of the world, shove it. We're not interested in what your issues are. And so history but somewhat it, repeated yeah. itself. And it does seem like on so many fronts that we have essentially removed ourselves from the role of leader on an international stage in recent years when it comes to issues of like multilateral trade and the like. And so you're proposing something that would seem to go against the grain of where this country has been going in the last several years. Yeah, I, I am. But what's going on internationally is a projection of also what we're doing domestically. We're telling governors, hey, you figure this out. Well, you know, there are times when we're 50 states and then there are times when we're the United States. And I know this because Florida didn't fight the Germans and Colorado didn't enact the Civil Rights Act. We kind of have this incoherent, disassociated approach internally. So it doesn't shock me that that's the way we are externally. But if you want to whip it and solve this problem, it needs coordinated, demonstrative leadership. And someone's going to have to pay for it. And that someone probably has to be us because we benefit the most from it. Okay. So it's worthwhile for us to do this, but yes, I understand. I mean, I've been to the UN both in Geneva and New York. I've been a, a representative of the United States in negotiations. I totally understand the anger. I've been before many of our international institutions that we're partners of, NATO, the OECD, etc. I get it. I get the anger because we look at these people and we're like, you're so frustrated in terms of what you do for us. But we need those institutions. We need those individuals. We need to convince them to work with us because we benefit from it. And I fundamentally believe the president's view is critically, fatally flawed in viewing everything autonomously and go it alone. It's the most expensive and the most difficult way to do foreign policy. Brian Del Monte of the Aviation Agency, I want to thank you so much for laying out these three main points, the things we need to do to prevent another great or greater depression. It's been a great discussion, and thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you, and I thank your listeners for having me. That was my conversation with Brian Del Monte of the Aviation Agency, talking about what we must do to prevent another Great Depression. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. Stay well, and see you next time.